Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Writers and Authors Show. We air this show every second Wednesday with our friends over at Books Forward. I encourage you to go to their website, booksforward.com. And today we're excited to welcome thriller and crime writer Mark Ellis. He's over in England, and he is joining us to talk about his latest novel in his World War II series. It's called Dead in the Water. It features DCI Frank Merlin, we love that name, by the way, uh, who continues his battle against rampant wartime crime when a mangled body is found in the Thames, just as some items of priceless art go mysteriously missing. So we love the whole, you know, when art crime is always fascinating to me. It is out now on Kindle and audiobooks. I encourage you to go to his website, markellisauthor.com, but it will be out in print edition in on April 25th, 2023. But again, you can get it now. So welcome to the show, Mark. How are you? Thank you very much and wonderful to meet you. And thank you very much both for having me on the show. Oh, we love this. So yes, you, this you were cool. a barrister. I just wanted to say the word barrister. Yeah, barrister. You don't get to say that <laughs> that often over here. What, you know, so what led you going from barrister to author or were you always writing? There's something um, about. Well, I had a, I, I, up until now, I've had a checkered career. I was, you're correct indeed. I did, I did studied law at Cambridge University and then I became a barrister for a while, but I didn't really take to it. And so I joined a what in those days was called a merchant bank. I think that name's gone away now, but I, I, I became a banker. Um, after a few, a few years of doing that, one of my clients offered me a job, a, a large corporate client, in terms of like made mergers and acquisitions. So I joined that company and uh, was there for several years, um, during some of which I actually lived in America. I lived in New York for two or three years at the end of the 80s, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, but then in the uh, 90s, I decided with a partner, uh, a close friend and, and uh, my, my business partner, um, to set up our own computer services company, which, which we did. Oh. And um, we had, as inevitably you do, lots of ups and downs. But eventually, we, we, although it was based in Europe, we took it public on NASDAQ. And wow. um, that, that entailed also coming back and forth to America quite a bit. And I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, where we had some business partners. Um, in the end, um, a company called NCR, National Cash Register, um, which is one of the, a venerable old American company, uh, offered to buy us. And uh, we said, thank you very much. <laughs> so we and we, we sort of uh, bought ourselves a little space um, in terms of time or being able to do things. And I, I always wanted to be a writer from a very young age. And I had written at university and so on. But once I got working full time. I, I, I tried just for a few months, the thing of getting up at half past six in the morning and doing a few words, and then doing it late at night when you get back, but I couldn't sustain it. But I mm. said to myself, one day, I would like to be a writer. So when I sold the, the company, um, it, it appeared clear to me, this was my chance. I either try now or I'll never do it. And so I, mm. I said, I knuckled down and, and created Frank Merlin. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. And I like so that. Frank, and I like when you say mm. you have a checkered past. I'm like, ooh, intrigue. <laughs> what does that mean? He does write about crime. I like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll Frank... turn that into a, I'll turn that into a novel one day. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Good. There's, there's, there's enough material, I can tell you. 
I think you're the first author who said I have a checkered past of like, woo. <laughs> we did interview a, a member of the mafia once. So that was kind of cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Not, he was, not that checkered. <laughs> yeah. No, he was he was adopted into the mafia. So he wasn't pure mafia. But then right. I said, well, what do you do now? He goes, I'm in the trucking business. I'm like, oh, I'm sure you are. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> I think he's still friends with me on LinkedIn. I don't know if I want to look. <laughs> but he did blow the cover of what was happening with Whitey Bulger. And when Whitey oh, Bulger really? got arrested, really? oh, yeah. yeah. It was like two yeah. days later, they got him in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And we're yeah. sitting there going, we just did a thing because he was part of the, was it the, oh, gosh, the, it was the Boston Hill yeah, gang. The Boston guy. I saw the film, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Johnny Boston Depp. Was it Johnny Probably. Depp? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Don't start me on that. Busy <laughs> <laughs> boy. But Franklin Merlin, tell us a little bit about him. Nancy's been reading it, and I've started reading mm. Dead in the Water. Um, tell us a little bit about him. And you know, Merlin is like you know a hero to us. Anyway, we love you know. Yeah, sure. No, I, well, the name. I'll tell you how the name came about. I originally, when I started the first book, which uh, became Prince's Gate, which just to confuse everyone, now the the uh, publishers have decided to rename my first three books. So Prince's Gate is now. <laughs> The Embassy Murders. Well, they, they're for logical reasons in the sense that if you see a book standing there calling, called Prince's Gate, which happens to be an area in London, you don't necessarily know it's a murder story. So they, they wanted to make clear it's a murder story. And the same with the other two books in the series. Mm. But um, anyway, he was a, a standard, your standard Cockney um, policeman called Harry. I can't actually remember what the first name now. It was Harry something. And I decided, oh, this is a bit boring. And I went on holiday to Spain. And this is a really obscure way of coming up with the title. I happened to be sitting um, by a field and in the field, there were some sheep. And I asked someone, what, bre what breed are those sheep? And um, I'm not, not, still not quite sure if this is correct, but he said they're Merino sheep. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, Merino, Merino, okay. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I came back home, I thought, why, why don't I make um, Frank Merlin half Spanish? I mean, he's English, but like he, he would have a, a Spanish parent. So then I came up with a whole backstory where his, his father, who was called Javier Marino, uh, was a um, merchant seaman um, from Cadiz, not, not from Cadiz, Cadiz, what am I saying? Corona in Northern Spain. He ended up in London, fell in love with an English Cockney girl, and they set up, uh, or they took over the girl's father's chandlery shop. Is chandlery an American word? You understand it's- Chandlery? Um, ship, ship goods, chandlery. Oh. Oh, so I, I, oh we would probably yeah. say Chan, Chandlery. A merchant. Okay. Right, um, right. Yeah. Merchant, anyway, that's uh, that's that's completely irrelevant. Yeah. To the, apart from it's yeah, part but, of the backstory. Okay. It's part of the backstory. And then Javier Marino goes on to have several children, the, the oldest, first and oldest of whom is Francisco Marino. And uh, then a few years in, when uh, the father gets fed up with English people mispr mispronouncing his name, he decides to change himself to Harry Merlin. And Francisco Merino becomes Frank Merlin. That's that's how he becomes Frank Merlin. And that is always what happens in family history when you're trying to do genealogy. You're like, dude, why did you do that? <laughs> Detour. <laughs> but, uh, but he's you know he's he's Spanish in look. He's you know tall, dark, and handsome. Um, but he's he, you know he's not, he's born born and brought up in in London, so he's very English. But every so often. Um, his being Spanish gives gives him the right to swear in Spanish, which he occasionally. Oh, we does. like this. Yes. <laughs> well, so that's Nancy's, how... Nancy Sorry, starts reading your book and she's going, "Oh, this is funny. This is really funny. What? 
she was in, just going, this is like a good romp. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> so it seems that he's got quite a good character. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, um, I, won't, I won't divulge his personal history of, because you know, people, his personal history evolves through the books and I don't, I think it's a, a spoiler to go into too much detail, but he's a solid, in, solid individual um you know with a good heart he's not one of those uh policemen who's got a chip on his shoulder or, mm. or whatever he does have a an irritating superior the assistant commissioner who who um he usually he often has battles with but you know fundamentally he's a good solid guy he played sport when he was younger he was a very good footballer football as in the english sense of soccer and um and he has good friends he likes a good drink He's a very keen on poetry. He loves poetry. He can quote reams of poetry uh, as anyone who, who he wants to quote it to. And he has a good, a good friend who, who, who they go out and they go to the pub and they talk poetry a lot. Um, so that's Frank Merlin. He, he, and he has, um, naturally he has, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. He has his team of sidekicks. He has a, a sergeant, Sergeant Bridges, who's a burly sort of solid guy. He has a lady constable, which was, of course, extremely unusual in the wartime, but it did happen. And she probably got a job, but well, she did get a job partly because she's the niece of the assistant commissioner. But she's a very nice, bright girl. And then there are various constables and other inspectors who appear, you know, some appear more in each book, one book than they do in another and so on. But the reason I was, the main drive for the series was, um, so I decided I wanted to write books. I, went and I then had to decide what books. I said, I'd like to write crime fiction because that's a very popular genre. And um, I think, you know, who knows, you might actually make some money out of it. And then I decided I would like to uh, pick, pick a period. And I, I considered a variety of different historical periods, but I, I plumped for World War II, uh, partly for personal, <coughs> personal reasons, because, um, so my parents, lived through the war. My father was actually in the Navy in the war. And although he didn't die in the war years, he did die because um, of the war. He contracted a disease in Africa, which was a wasting disease. He didn't die till 1960 when I was seven. But um, so basically he, he died because of the war. So that the war loomed large in my background. And also my mother used to tell me funny stories about her wartime experiences. Uh, she had been a secretary mm. in Wales. I'm Welsh um, originally, and she'd been a secretary in Wales. And if you work for the railway in those days, still actually to a certain extent, you got you get quite a few perks like free tickets. And she and her friends would use free tickets to go up to London over the weekend during the war. And they they also had, they could stay in a hotel very cheaply because they were employed by the railway company. And I, this, this was like 1942, three, four. I said, well, you know, yeah. you're going up for a weekend when London was being bombed. Didn't you sort of consider that was a bit dangerous? And she said, well, we had to continue living our lives. And that mm -hmm. sort of opened a window to me on life in the war. People, life did not stop. Uh, ordinary life did not stop. There were constraints, there was rationing, there was shortages, there were bombs. But people tried to live their, only, uh, their ordinary lives. People fell in love, got married, got divorced, etc., uh, etc., et and of course, uh, criminals continued to commit crime. And not only did they continue to commit crime, but they crime between 1939 and 1945 in England and Wales grew by 60%. And wow. this, therefore, I thought, if I'm writing a crime oh. series, this represents a lot of opportunity. And there were a number of reasons why. I mean, I think a lot of people think 
when I think of the war in the British context and, and the American context too, it's like the stiff upper lip and people just knuckled down and went, did their best for the war effort. But the criminal and, and the, the criminals must have done the same, but they didn't. They thought they saw opportunity. First of all, you had the blackouts and, um, you know, the, everything was mm -hmm. there were no lights in the evening. Um, then there was the rationing, huge amounts of rationing, which created a huge black market. Um, so there were whole, all sorts of scams people could do. Then uh, over the years, and particularly after the, the uh, foreign forces began to come in, Americans, Australians and whatever, there was a huge market for vice, particularly in London. There were lots of mm -hmm. clubs and prostitutes. Um, that one, and strange enough, these, these, these were run by the, uh, a Maltese gang. I don't know why, but everything was controlled by people from Malta. Um, they had so many um, prostitutes on the streets of London, they used, they used to call them the Piccadilly paratroopers. And uh, hey, hey, <laughs> so, so uh, oh, and that raises Sorry. another issue. I mentioned the, the gangs, the gangs, uh, there were lots of gangs. There was gang warfare. There were mm -hmm. uh, gangs who controlled the black market, gangs who did more vice, gangs that did the uh, more robbery. Uh, and uh, all of these things, if you throw them together, there was a thriving criminal life. In fact, uh, mm -hmm. there was one criminal who lived through the war. Um, uh, he was a real person called Mad Frankie Fraser. He's dead now, but like 10, 15 years ago, he had some notori notoriety. He had no notoriety anyway, but he had more notoriety because someone ghosted his autobiography. And in the, in the story, and then when he was in the talk shows talking about it, one of the things he said, and I won't use any profanities, but they, they were filled with profanities. He, he said, that X Hitler, why did he X give in? We were having such an X X wonderful time, i.e. the criminal. <laughs> no. So, no, yeah. no way. No, you know, it kind of reminds me of prohibition over here when the mafia went, uh, yeah, you know, exactly it, was, exactly. it was running. But Nancy, yeah. you were talking about Nana. Yeah, my grandmother she came from Hull in Yorkshire. Yeah. But she was over here in the States during the war. And she right. said it was a, a great for all. And she still had relatives back in England. And she said that basically you could get anything you want if you were smart enough and fast enough. It's how she put it. <laughs> She's kind of like um, people were auctioning off things and um, bargaining. And that's where, in her mind, that's where bargaining really, really took off. Yeah. Because well, if, if, she was like, for food, she, she would go bargain for food. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and so if, obviously, if you had money or you had. You didn't have to necessarily bargain with money. You could there were there were coupons for petrol, mm. coupons for clothing. I was going to say, watch coupons. what you say about my nana, Mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, lit fire, yeah, she and was. People, they people forged these coupons. There was a huge amount of forgery. And, yeah, uh, and and all sorts of other scams, like people people who are of military age would go to do corrupt doctors who would give them med medical certificates for for a sum of money saying that they were not fit to serve. Um, there were people who wow. were building, obviously lots of bomb shelters were built and uh, deals were done where uh, between corrupt council officials and builders where they-, they What are you talking about now? <laughs> Sorry, me or you? Okay, now too. You know, they, they built shoddy, shoddy shelters which collapsed when they were bombed and people got killed. Oh because oh. they'd cut corners to make money and they'd taken oh. a large slice out of the council money. 
Mm. Um, I mean, I'm, these are these are real cases which led to prosecutions. Well, it's interesting, wow. you know, when you talk about also in this book, you you focus on missing art, and you know, I I look at you know, you think about music and the arts have always really told the the true story of history. I think just you know, they what people felt what was really going down versus what would come out of a politician's mouth, really, right? <laughs> Sorry, I have to throw that in there, but but missing art, you know, when you think about, you're going through a world war, all of this is going on. Are people looking at art at that point, you know, and is it, you know, your focus is in a different place. So when, when there's a, you know, it's like, criminals will set a fire on one side of the town so everybody rushes there so they can go rob everybody yeah. while the fire is going you know no, but uh, the, the fact is that the art market continued throughout the war really? um it wasn't easy to conduct but that's what part of this story is about so um the book starts off with uh it's pre-war and it starts off with a nazi raid on a Jew wealthy jewish family in vienna who have a lot of art and the nazis steal the arts i mean and the nazis were being sent out with instructions uh, by people like Goering, who was a huge art collector, to look out for interesting pieces. This is from before the war, when there was the Anschluss with Austria, when when they were rolling in, into Czechoslovakia and so on. And, and this continued throughout the war. And of course, there, there are cases still today where there are families trying to recover their art uh, that went missing through this route. But I, I sort of, um, I mean, you know, this is, is what I've created this fiction, but it's based on things that happened. So I have a story where the art is stolen and then some of it re reappears in London, having gone through some torturous route of having been sold by a Nazi to someone else. And it ends up in the hands of a businessman in London and he wants to sell them. And so he goes to a very, um, an art dealer in, in London and the art dealer knows of people who are interested. And one of the people who would have been interested, and this is a real person that appears in the book, is someone called Kalust Gulbenkian. And I had read a biography about him a few years before, and no one knows his name now, but he was actually the richest man in the world in 1942, which is the year of this book, uh, richer even than Rockefeller, because he was known, he's the man who was known as Mr. 5%. He introduced all the major, in the beginning of the 20th century, so we're talking 1910, 1912, he, he was the first person to introduce all the major oil companies to the Middle East. And he was right there at the ground level for the uh, wow. development wow. Of, the, of the oil industry. And he's known as Mr. 5% because he always had his 5%. And I thought, <laughs> so I thought to myself, so uh, at this point in the war, he had lived in London, he'd gone to live in France. He'd had to run from, the, uh, from well, he didn't run, but he, he extricated himself and went to Vichy, France, but he ended up in, in Portugal. Lisbon, of course, was a, a neutral, Portugal was neutral. So it was an interesting place for anyone to live or, or for an author to write about. But I just posit that or suggest that the art that's turned up in, Lon in London, the art dealer can notify him and he's interested in buying it. But he has complications in buying it because he can't get hold of his money because, you know, various places, it's in all various places where you can't access it. And then this leads to one strong element of the story. Oh, no spoilers allowed, Nancy. No spoilers yeah, allowed. Not, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. But it's, it is interesting. I just reflect on what my grandmother told me. And I remember her talking about getting carpets and how how hard it was to get real carpets, good carpets, how yeah. much you had to pay. And um, 
he said you offloaded the carpet at night because if your neighbors saw it, they would come sort of yes. help themselves. Yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and there was lots of what was also going on a lot was that the, the soldiers um, and and criminals or soldiers without the criminals were stealing stuff from from the army camps, you know, and, and on, on a, wow. an industrial scale, not just uh, guns and bullets, but um, I was, I was reading the other day about um, there was a huge amount of laundry that went missing because, you oh, know, wow. it had a value. And so they took it and they yeah. sold it and it, they made money. And it wasn't only crooked soldiers like at the lower level. There were like there were colonels and majors they found to be involved in this, who some of them got caught, some of them oh. didn't get caught. So corruption wow. was quite, quite uh, significant, which you never mm -hmm. I, before I launched into this whole thing. I never thought that. But wow. um, yeah. anyway, so uh, wow. as I say, every 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 book I do when I'm doing my research for each book, I find some new quirky little odd thing that I would never have thought would have happened or be the case. So mm. yeah, it's wow. it's uh, astonishing. I've written, you know, there, there are five books in the series so far. So there's cool. quite a lot of research that's gone mm. in, but. Do you travel to any of the destinations that, that you write I about? Have, I have. Um, first of all, m most of it is in London. Mm. So I could walk around London, but I do make a point of uh, double checking my descriptions, you know, making sure that's what it would have been like during the war. And, uh, mm. If it's changed, getting old pictures and so on. But I have had um, other country, other capital cities or countries, or uh, but they're all quite minor. But I have, mm. to answer your question, I have visited some of them. So my second book, which was called Stalin's Gold, and has now been renamed In the Shadows of the Blitz. Um, in that one, we have uh, Stalin and Beria and lots of unsavory Russians um, appear. And um, I decided, I, and also there's a, there's a, a, a Polish angle. So, so there's scenes in, in Warsaw. So I did go to Warsaw and Moscow. Um, this was quite a long time ago now. It obviously would be difficult to go to Moscow now. Um, but right. yes, I do, I do that. <laughs> And I have other places. I have New York features a little bit in one of the books, okay. but, I but I lived in New York. I know New York pretty well. Uh, Buenos Aires appears. Uh, I didn't go there specifically for the book, but I had spent a bit of time there, so I knew it on the ground. So uh, yes, uh, not, nice. not always, mm. but sometimes I, I do. Mm. But certainly any, Lon any London location, I go and double check. With In regards oh. to this book, um, Dead mm. in the Water, and it having this art mystery in it and art thievery, when you were doing your research on that, especially you've written about Stalin, right? Yeah. I have the, in the back of my head, there was some big art scandal to do with Russian paintings. I don't know if it was around the World War II era. I don't, there was something happened somewhere. And you, I, can't, you, I think you might be thinking of, um, and I can't remember, there was a palace, which um, yes, yes. that's what you're, I think, and, it, and, it, and, and an incredibly wealthy jeweled, um, other stuff, jade or something like that. I can't remember. It wasn't jade, which which got transported completely somewhere. And I think re and recently they started that. There's a suggestion they found it, you know, two hundred yards, two hundred feet underground somewhere. I, I, I can't remember oh, the specifics. There is something. Yeah, there. there's something. But these yeah. art mysteries happen all the time. It happened um, mm -hmm. in Silver City, New Mexico, in Southwest yeah. New Mexico, is a place we go to as often as we can. It's a blossoming art community. Yeah. And one of the um, galleries slash also um, selling antiques and, and all of this, turns out one of the paintings they've had up for sale was this masterpiece 
stolen mm -hmm. painting. I wish I had the name of it right now and the artist. And it became, and there's actually a whole documentary on this whole thievery of this yeah. painting. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about the value of art, which is, it's like the value of wine, right? How do you price it? How, you know, yeah. so then the, in terms of the thieveries of it, you know, it's, I find art thievery fascinating. I, just, I think there was, what, there was um, a Hollywood film not about five, mm. quite recently, five or six years ago with George Clooney called The Monument Men. Yeah. Which, because there was like a division mm. of the army of, in, involving British and American officers, which was sent out to try and track down art that the Nazis had stolen. Um, yep. uh, I never saw it, but mm. um, I would quite like to see it now because I know a bit more about the subject. Some, but, of, um, some of the art was re well, painted over. Yeah. When, yes, the, yeah, when yeah. those thieves yeah, yeah. stole it, that they would paint yeah. something on top of the painting so that people wouldn't know what was what yeah. the real painting was, yeah. which, you know, kind of ruins the painting unless you really know how to restore. Yeah, yeah. But wow. I mean, and so I think there's probably a lot of paintings still out there. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm absolutely the sure there are, mm -hmm. there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands, you know, you, know, you just mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. But I, I have to say that the, the, that's not the sole plot in this book, the, the art, the art uh, theft, because, um, and there, there are a few other subplots, but uh, I also have a story and it sort of runs into it. All my stories tend to run into each other. There's usually a way they finish up satisfactorily, I hope, you know. And the other, one of the other things I do, so when I research a book, obviously I have a lot of general knowledge now about the World War II, but I know it's going to be happen in a specific month or, or five or six weeks. So I before I start, I spend three months researching that specific period. And so this period, the period of the dead in the water is the summer of 1942. And I learned something new when I was doing the research, which was, of course, by now the American soldiers have arrived. Pearl Harbor's happened six months before. Americans are in the war <coughs> and people are arriving. And, um, but I did not know that in August of 1942, the British government legislated to uh, seed um, jurisdiction over uh, the, the American authorities would have legal jurisdiction over all alleged crimes committed by their people. So if someone was accused of murder, it would all be handled by American criminal courts uh, mm -hmm. or, or, or lesser stuff, yeah. you know, theft or, or whatever. And um, so there was a cutoff point in, in the time of this book where the, the people might have been, uh, in, and in fact, in the, is, this is the case here, Frank Merlin is investigating something which involves a, a, um, an airman, um, and he has to hand the case over. And there's quite a plot, there's a plot about the fact he doesn't want to do it, he believes the Americans are getting it wrong, et cetera, et cetera, which is then further extended the plot for the fact that the airman is a black uh, airman. And of course, there was a huge amount, there was a huge amount of prejudice between white and black mm -hmm. uh, soldiers in in Britain, and oh, really? so then, yeah, oh wow. yes, yeah, and uh, for and also so in in the legal system, the prejudice came out in in so far as um, there were more black soldiers prosecuted and and hung than white soldiers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Wow. Um, so so there's an angle <laughs> of that where someone <laughs> is accused, and and but I won't go into any more. And that's well, it's kind of like what happens over here. I mean, it's like <laughs> if you're if you're a black man, you're going to get pulled over and your car yeah. raided versus you know a white man. And so we it, it sort of made itself mm -hmm. very clear um, in Britain because um, if if 
soldiers were going to a dance hall in London, for example, or anywhere in, in England, uh, white soldiers, some white soldiers, uh, would take offense at the idea they would see a black soldier dancing with an English white girl and they wouldn't like yeah. it and a fight yeah. would start. And all mm -hmm. and the same in pubs. And in due course, um, by the latter years of the war, many, many places of entertainment, pubs and whatever, operated as sort of apartheid in the sense that they agreed wow. one pub would say, oh, we'll take the black soldiers. And another pub would say, we'll, we'll take the white soldiers just wow. to avoid any hassle. That's like so what we was... lived in South Africa and it was like that. It was also like that yeah. for yeah. white women. Mm -hmm. It was also yeah. the same for white women. Like you couldn't yeah. go, mm -hmm. there were men's pubs and you couldn't go in and if yeah. you're a woman. No, and no. So it's yeah. been, it was mostly black versus white, but it's like here yeah. you go around the corner and the shops were split into like this is the black side of the shop that's the white side and i'm like yeah. i want to go on the black side because it looks more fun because it's <laughs> it did well because it was just it made no sense to me as a kid you know that that apartheid yeah. stuff mm -hmm. i heard that um for soldiers black soldiers even like here the tuskegee airmen there's some famous stories yeah when they went over to france that they were more accepted in france than when they came home like in yes, france yeah. they were appreciated and honored and then they'd fly home and they have to face the prejudice again so yeah, like, well a lot of um, famous jazz players didn't they 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 just mm -hmm. were in these services they they went to paris after the war and they stayed there forever mm -hmm. yeah. yeah anyway yeah that's part of the story you've got so much going on man this is so there's much a lot fun. going on it, yeah. it's a busy it was a busy time and <laughs> i think my grandmother was right it was busy and it was a free for all it was a little bit crazy yeah, you know, you and know, think and, of the, sad the music too. that was coming out at the time too, you know. So yeah. it, it was kind of like party time, even though we're blowing people up, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's some, was there was some good dance, party. good dance music in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. all. Yeah. Some of the and the melody, Glenn Miller, the Glenn Miller and, uh, oh yeah, yeah, Tommy Dorsey, sisters, uh, Duke Ellington. That, that reminds me of another interesting thing again, which is surprising, which is uh, not related to this book but is related to earlier books when i was writing about periods when the blitz happened people mm. have the idea that um you know and, and lots of buildings were blown to pieces and whatever no one thinks that there was looting there was huge amounts of looting um by ordinary people uh, by policemen by uh, air wardens <laughs> you know if people were going past the house and they saw there was some nice stuff there they'd go and grab it and i think uh, if I'm right, in the in the three months between um, September, in October, November, December of uh, 1940, which is the Blitz, the main Blitz, um, there were 4,500 cases uh, in, in the Old Bailey, which is our famous old court in London, where people were prosecuted for looting. And the wow. worst, the worst one to me, or the most striking, is um, uh, there's a there's a famous restaurant here still going called the Cafe Royale and it was a place where you'd go to dance, dine, etc. Um, and uh, it was hit, hit hit directly, so you know hundreds of people were killed. Um, and when but when the, uh, the, the services arrived, the fire services and the wardens, whatever, to try and sort everything out, they had to fight their way to the bodies against people who were trying to pull the jewelry off. Um, you know, so oh so my I god, think, yeah. <laughs> well, desperate I'll, times, desperate times, and if, people... someone, if someone made a film of that, I don't think people would believe it, you know. But, uh, anyway, well, so. yeah. that you know, we've, we've seen a few <coughs> things just in travels around <laughs> the world, and it desperate things, you know, create mm -hmm. opportunity, and and that's that's really 
the truth yeah. of this, you know, what about also when you talk about crime, all the spying that was going on, the espionage yeah. and spying. And I think mm -hmm. that's a whole other war crime. We did an interview about um, the doll woman spy turned out to be the biggest spy woman spy in this country during World War II. She had a doll shop in New York. <clears throat> and here's this sweet little lady with her dolls who hung out with all the Japanese and gave all this information through her dolls and doll really? sales to the Japanese, the doll woman's velvet, velvet. And why? And so, but she got caught, but I mean, she mm. went down, like she was giving out information that was ending on submarines. I mean, it was insane what this woman did. Yeah. And she basically, I mean, people died over her, her things, you know, her spying yeah. and you, you sit there going, Oh, cool. We got a female spy, of course, like Tokyo Rose and all of that. There's that, you know, what she was yeah. up to with probably well, Julia Childs. Well, she was a positive spy. Julia Childs yes. was a positive spy. We like her. The cook. Yes. yes. She was a spy a for spy. in World War II. Yeah. She, yeah. For, for it's, isn't it cool, though? Like all these women out yeah. there going, hey, hey, I'll make you some food. Well, well, there's, <laughs> there's another one. Um, there's an author here called Ben McIntyre, who's very good writing uh, biographies of this period. And I can't remember the name of the book, but there was a, a German lady spy who was, okay. became a communist in the 20s. And she became a spy in the 20s and she was spying for uh, Russia. She was in China and Japan, all sorts of places. She ended up in the war um, and married to an English, so, well, married, she was, I don't know whether she was actually married or not. They were married to an English, uh, uh, English worker uh, living in Oxfordshire, uh, quite close to a place where I, where I spent a bit of time. And uh, she was the main one responsible for uh, there was a guy called Klaus Fuchs, who was a scientist in, in the uh, atomic bomb and all that stuff. She was the main passer of information of the atomic bomb from the Russian, from out from the British side to the Russians. Wow. And she is calculated on our side to be the most wow. damaging spy there's ever been. Wow, we need to <coughs> do a show just on spies. I mean, yeah, yeah, we I, should. I, do, I, I do have quite a lot of espionage. But there's a bit of espionage in this book, too. And my cool. third book, uh, which used to be called Merlin at War, is now called The French Spy. And it's all about people spying. Um, as you know, de Gaulle had his own free French forces in London and, and uh, mm. was holding the flag up for France while Germany occupied France. And But there were spying going back and forth between de Gaulle's organization and um, Vichy France. And a lot of the story in that is about this. And I have two or three spy things going on in Dead in Water. Cool. Oh, I love this. I love this. Sounds this, exciting. Yeah, you know, but and there's, I mean, obviously these really sad stories from World War II, obviously, I mean, just, you know, yeah. gut wrenching. But I think what you're doing by writing these stories is maybe not bringing because it's crime and crime is not good when you're in the victim of the crime, but you're bringing maybe readers that let's just face it, history can be really boring in school, right? So when yeah, you start yeah. to read a novel like this, like, ooh, a little bit of crime, you're going to start learning more about what World no, War II is about. No, no, so I think a, it's a an of, education. Yeah. A lot of my readers say appreciatively, you know, I didn't know that. It's good to know that. It's good to know this. And I do approach mm -hmm. it with, with a view of trying to introduce in, information. The danger, I think, is you mustn't overdo it. And mm -hmm. you mustn't show off, oh, I know this, this and this, because I think that's off-putting to the reader. You must insert it quite carefully so that it's all seamlessly part of the, the plot and the story and people mm -hmm. that will then assimilate the knowledge in the right way, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and yeah because you would remember a story 
you know yeah. you don't remember yeah. a list of dates yeah and one line by each date oh this happened on this date and that happened you like so what mm -hmm. you know you need the story yeah. and that's mm -hmm. what you're going to remember the story <laughs> and the characters are really important yeah. Well, I, right, I would never say that I've had so much fun on a World War II conversation because <laughs> it's always, <laughs> I mean, I just, we enjoy our interviews and always learn, but it's always, you know, there's, it's, it's heartbreaking what people went through, but this is, this is, I'm well, kind of smiling through this one. The real, people should know the real history of the war, the good things and the yeah, bad things. Exactly. My yeah. grandmother, we call her Nana, Nana said it was a hoot. She just said it was a hoot, and she said you could get away with anything you wanted to get if you were quick and you were smart. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I don't think that would be the case for everyone. I think it might have been a hoot for some the clever Nana ones. Nana was a naughty Nana, Nana, but she wasn't Nana, that naughty. She was, she was a girl only, I think. <laughs> she was four foot nine, and she says she was the first woman to ride a motorcycle by herself from California to Canada and back. Wow. Wow, yeah, so she, yeah, so she was a little right. spitfire. She was, she, was, she was a character, obviously. Well, she was married yes. at 13. They shipped yes. her over at 13. Yeah. You know, it was like those arranged marriages to a man yeah, that yeah. was what, 10, 15 years older than her. Um, she who was supposed to marry her twin sister, and he said no. And then no, they half shoved, sister or half, half sister. What, yeah. yeah. Then they just swapped sisters and off they came to America and started a life. How crazy is that? Fact, that was we, what was we going have, on back then. Apparently we, a... Sorry, say, apparently we have um, our family on the British side has a castle somewhere in England. Yeah. And it's supposed to be on the Isle of Man. Isle of Man, it's yeah. A whole, it's the Holroyd castle, but I haven't okay. found I don't it. know. I'm going to look it up afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, I, last cause... time I looked, it turned into an apartment building, so oh, uh, okay. flats. I oh, should bummer. Say. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like sounds to me like you should write a book about her. Yeah. <laughs> you should, actually. Nana's, Nana rocks. <laughs> she, she was something to reckon with. But that, but did you find any of that kind of history in that era of, of young marriages? Where she um, may have been, or a little bit sooner, yeah, because that she was before that. Yeah, I haven't. I, I, it hasn't occurred to me that as, that is a line of a plot or anything. But I'm sure there were mm -hmm. more likely in the sort of outlying places. I don't think it would have happened that much in somewhere like London. I, I may be completely right. wrong. I'm actually going to look look that look that look into that now. Yeah, because I'm going to think about when she was because she was an adult during World War Two. So that's that's a little so yeah. that was pre like more World War One mm -hmm. time maybe. I'm going to get. Yeah, she was... There was there was a lot of abuse in the sense that. Um, quite young girls, I mean, they were teenagers of, of age or 16, <coughs> went um, on something that they became land girls and they went to work on farms um, around the country as, they, as their way of contributing to the national effort. And there are stories that they, they were abused by farmers and farmers' sons and whatever in, in a bad way. Um, probably somewhere along the way, one or two of them got married and maybe they didn't want to get married. Hmm. Well, she was 13 and my grandfather was 26 when they got married yeah I'm like right. something like that yeah. well she was she was the same age as the queen mother that's right i remember that oh, she, okay. was, she was uh, yeah. born in 1900 so same as the queen right. mother i think and yeah. so she was that same age group so that was a little bit so she was an adult an adult when world yeah. war ii happened yeah so she's got well she had a vivid memory of it i should say but um, she's she's off doing other things up somewhere. <laughs> she's, yeah. she's lighting a fire somewhere. But she's partying with that. the queen mother and the queen. Maybe I know. Yeah, really. it's like and watch out for your wings. Yeah, she's gonna I, she'll she's be, gonna snack them. 
And now she's going <laughs> to spike their tea. That's what she's going to do. <laughs> that's, that's what Nana was about. But Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a true pleasure. Uh, so much fun. And uh, everyone, again, uh, the book is out right now called Dead in the Water by Mark Ellis. Uh, you can get it on Kindle. You can get an audio. But a big print run is coming up April 25th. Uh, of course, there's five books to check out, too. So go to markellisauthor.com. Mark is also involved on Twitter, so you can keep up with him at markellis at the number 15, because he's going to have to write 15 books. And That's also right. he's on Facebook. <laughs> Look up the Mark Ellis author page and Instagram, Mark E-L-L, -L, and then the number one, because he's number one. You know, that's it. <laughs> so everyone keep up with us at bigblendradio.com. As I was saying, we do this show every second uh, Wednesday with our friends over at Books Forward. You can see more about what they do for authors at booksforward.com. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, Thank Mark. you. It's my, my pleasure. Thank you both, Lisa and Nancy. It was great. Mm -hmm.